I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15. Matthew, chapter 15. I want to read the first 20 verses in connection with Lord's Day 44. Matthew 15, beginning to read at verse 1. Hear the word of God with me. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition, hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? <coughs> Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes out into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Thus far, would you then also turn with me in the back of your Psalter hymnal to page 893, Lord's Day 44, question and answer 113, 114, and 115. And I remind you that this is your confession of faith as it is mine. What is God's will for you in the Tenth Commandment? That not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. Since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? First, so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, 
so that we might never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word as we find it in his word in the summary of the creeds and and the confessions of the church. May God once again add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, last summer the Christian Reformed churches in North America adopted a position paper with regards to human sexuality. And as can well be imagined, the document document generated much discussion, disagreement, sadness, even defiance, and I would almost say anarchy. Numbers of individuals as well as entire congregations went on record, went on notice saying they are not going to submit to the church's ruling. It's well possible that the CRC will see another major split over this whole matter, the matter of how must the church respond to Christians who are gay. Everyone agrees that homosexual behavior, practices, and above all, same-sex marriages, civil or otherwise, is an abomination to the Lord. There was no disagreement. Where the two sides disagree is with respect to homosexual orientation. We have always said, the churches have always held that homosexual orientation is as consequence of the fall in the Garden of Eden, and that all of man's faculties, including his sexuality, has become corrupted. We went on to say that we had great compassion on those who are afflicted with the same-sex attraction, and we agreed that as, as a Christian who is gay but lives a celibate, chaste life, that he is to, or she is to be welcomed into the church as full, communicant member in good standing, good and regular standing. However, what has now come to expression is that as consequent of our current culture and under the influence of the LBGTQ uh, movement, Christians who have homosexual inclinations are unable, perhaps unwilling to understand that celibacy is not enough. Because even the inclination, the orientation towards homosexuality is sinful, and therefore the orientation as well needs to be confessed, struggled against, and overcome with the gracious help of God. The ultimate goal of God is for, is for the gay uh, community to, uh, to, to overcome gay orientation and be turned by God to a heterosexual being, for that is God's will for us as sexual human beings. I bring this up in this context because it seems to me that the biblical answer to the whole question is right here in this Lord's Day. What is God's will for you in the Tenth Commandment? Answer, that not even the slightest desire, not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. That seems to me to be crystal clear language. That, that's not even, that not even a thought or a desire contrary to God's will will even arise in our hearts or in our minds. 
And so obviously then when such thoughts or desires, such as homosexual desires for the same sex, when they do arise in our hearts, we are to repent of them and we are to plead with God in prayer that he would take that desire away. And people of God, in our catechism sermons over the past number of months, we've carefully listened to God's will for us in the nine out of the ten commandments. We have carefully dissected all of the thou shalts and thou shalt nots, and and we have carefully examined the nine commandments in their positive and their negative elements. And we have considered these commandments, and we have explained their principles and their precepts, and, and we have applied them to ourselves, and we have found ourselves wanting. We have learned that the source of our misery is our failure to keep God's commandments. However, in the abstract... It is conceivable that after having listened carefully to all of these nine commandments so far, it is conceivable that a person could examine himself or herself in the light of these commandments and come away being quite satisfied with himself. A person could consider himself to be enough of a Pharisee to say, I don't worship other gods. I don't swear. I keep the Sabbath. I honor my parents. I don't commit adultery. I don't steal. I don't lie and bear false witness. A man could conceivably pat himself on his self-righteous back and congratulate himself with how well he has kept all of God's commandments until he comes to this, the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. And now all of his sinful pride would have to fall away. You see, this commandment probes much deeper than the surface. This commandment goes to the heart and it exposes the source of sin. This commandment condemns not only sinful deeds and actions, lying, stealing, and adultery, but it condemns also sinful desires. Think with me again of my introduction about homosexual orientation. This commandment relates not only to what we do, but also what we want. This commandment says that a man can look oh so good on the outside. He might appear to be keeping all of the commandments and yet and yet he could be rotten to the core on the inside. That was the painful experience of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus one day to ask him, how do I obtain eternal life? And Jesus tells him to obey the commandments of the law of God. I have done so all of my life said the young man. So then Jesus put him to the supreme test. He told him to give up all of his riches, take up the cross and follow the Christ. That was too much for the young man. That price was just too great. That sacrifice was just too much. And we read that he went away sorrowful, for he was a very rich man. You see, he may have indeed have obeyed all of the commandments, but it was simply an external obedience. It was lip service. It was outward conformity, or if you will, it was pietism. It was religiosity. His wealth was his real God, and so in essence, he did not obey the commandments at all. His outward actions and his deeds may have appeared right and holy, but his inner desires were wrong, and the condition of his heart made all of his good deeds unacceptable to the Lord. The commandment before us this afternoon, congregation, searches the heart and 
probes the heart. And it explains that what looks like true piety very often is nothing more than pietism. And the difference between the two is very great. Piety is true religion. Piety is created in our hearts through the operation of the Holy Spirit. Pietism is a false religion. It is something man does for himself, to himself, simply by behavior modification, by modifying his own outward behavior. The one, piety, is genuine. The other, pietism, is false. True piety is true religion from the heart. Pietism is a form of religion. It is Christian living without the heart commitment, living for Christ. And our text of this afternoon and the summary of our confession this afternoon speaks of these things, and I want to minister God's word to you as that relates to the Tenth Commandment, using as my theme, honoring God from the heart. And what we want to learn is that this commandment condemns lip service, it demands heart service, and this commandment, in this commandment, the Lord insists of us to give him our very hearts. This afternoon, the Catechism insists of us that we consider the last of the Ten Commandments. In essence, in essence, this commandment embraces all of the prior commandments. We hear that already in the words of the Confession. What does the Tenth Commandment require? That not even the slightest thought or inclination contrary to any of God's commandments shall ever arise in our hearts. So in composition, this commandment comes last, but in its content, it is actually first. In composition, this commandment comes last, but it should actually come first. In this commandment, God comes to us and says, My son, my daughter, my child, give me your heart. And it is now in that context that we suggested earlier that it might be conceivable for someone to convince himself that he has kept all of the commandments, but his pride must shatter before the requirements of this commandment. What does it require? Well, first of all, negatively that not the slightest thought or inclination against God's law will arise in my heart. Think about that. That not the slightest thought or inclination against any of God's law will arise in my heart. That means then that even though I may have actually not committed adultery, if I was to look at another woman and desire her, guilty. I may never have actually stolen anything. But if I envy envy my neighbor's new car, guilty. I may have actually always honored and obeyed my parents and all those in authority over me. But if I have ever resented their authority, guilty. I may never have actually been guilty of gossip, backbiting, or slander. But if I ever thought ill of my neighbor, or if I did not come to his defense when his name or reputation was under attack. Guilty. I may never have have acted on my same-sex attraction, but if I have the desire to do so, guilty. And on and on with all of the other commandments when we set them into the context of this commandment. But more yet, the commandment is also a positive side, and it demands that at all times, at all times, We will hate sin with our whole hearts and that at all times we will delight in righteousness. You know what righteousness means? It means sinlessness. And so it demands that at all times we will hate sin with our whole heart and that at all times we will delight in sinlessness. 
That means that we, are, we, that we always love, always serve perfectly the only true God, that we always worship him only in the way he, which he has commanded, that we always honor his name, that we always keep the Sabbath holy, and that we not only do these things always, but that we do them all perfectly always. People thought, who is qualified to do that? Who among us is able to keep this commandment positively and negatively? Not even a thought or an inclination against any one of God's commandments may ever rise within our hearts. Imagine that. Do you understand what that means, congregation? It means to love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, and it means to, to love our neighbor as ourselves. That means further that keeping the nine commandments, the nine commandments, keeping all of the nine commandments is still insufficient. It means that even if we have kept all of those commandments from our youth, it's not enough. It means that not only are we to keep the commandments, we are to keep them because of our burning love for God and neighbor. Here God insists of us that we give him our all, that we give him our hearts. But now we need to interpret carefully for just a moment, for you see, our Lord asks of us here something we cannot give. Oh, I know he has shed his blood on Golgotha. He is now entitled to my heart and is his possession since he has purchased me body and soul with his own precious blood. But I cannot give him my heart. That's an impossibility for me. And now as I stand before this 10th commandment, if it was to depend upon me and my feeble, sinful efforts, then all would be lost. There would be no hope. If this commandment meant, as so many suggest, that after Golgotha, Christ has done his part, and now it's up to you? If that were the case, then we could only cry out that the mountains would cover us in despair, for we cannot, we cannot on our own, we cannot give Christ our hearts that's impossible for us. Tis not that I did choose thee for, Lord, that could not be. This heart, my heart, your heart, would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. Oh no, I was lost. You were lost. We were lost. And we would remain lost if it were left up to us. Our hearts would never, could never, belong to Christ. But praise be to God in that he gave us Jesus as a complete Savior. Jesus does not just hold out an, an offer of salvation. Jesus accomplished and applies salvation. Jesus did not remain on Golgotha. No, we know of Easter. We know the Ascension and the Pentecost. In other words, Jesus not only writes God's law upon the tablets of our heart, but Jesus makes our hearts temples of the living God. Jesus comes to live within our hearts. And that, people of God, is the source and the answer to the miracle. Jesus asks that what he asks of us that which we cannot give. My son, my daughter, my child, give me your heart. But we cry out, nothing, 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 O oh Lord, I have nothing to bring in and of myself. I have nothing but sin and shame. And yet to our amazement, 
Christ asks of us to give him our hearts, and in amazement, we find ourselves giving him our hearts. How is that possible? People want it's not because of how good we are. It's not because we made the right decision. It's not because we are so pious. It's not even because we have honored our covenant obligations. No, it is because, because, and only because Christ is a complete and a perfect Savior. He not only has earned our salvation, but He, by His Spirit, applies that salvation to our hearts. And now we give Him our hearts. Now we keep our part of the covenant, not so that we could be saved by Him. No, we give Him our hearts because, because we have already been saved by Him and because He now lives within our hearts. Try to capture this concept with me. It is urgent, it is important. Because of Christ's work, because of his Holy Spirit within our hearts, we now find ourselves wanting to keep God's commandments, all of the commandments. And in of ourselves we cry out, Oh God, that first commandment, that is too great a burden for me. It is an impossibility for me. Lord, it requires that I love you perfectly with all my heart. Lord, that's not possible. And yet, Lord, and yet, Lord, you know that I love you. Lord, you see me kneeling before you in the sanctuary. Lord, my heart would not. My heart could not. My knees would not. And yet, Lord, you know I love you. And my knees bow down before you. Oh, Lord, it's all so different now. It used to be, Lord, that the Bible left me kind of cold and indifferent. It used to be that being in your house on the Sunday, especially twice, was not all that important. But now, Lord, when the Bible is opened, I hear you speaking to me, and my heart cries out, Lord, Lord, our Lord, how glorious is your name in all the earth. And then yet, Lord, When I hear the church bells ringing on Sunday mornings, then my heart skips a beat and literally springs within me because I'm anxious to meet with your people within the walls of the sanctuary, within your presence, oh Lord. I don't understand it. I can't fully explain it except to say that my heart is different now. It is now my chief delight to keep all of your commandments, and Lord, I know that everything points to Christ because I had nothing to give. I had nothing to offer but he did it all for me he did it all in me oh praise God from whom all blessings flow but then suddenly we come to the next question and answer and it would seem to take the wind out of our sails somewhat the question is asked but can those who are converted to God so we're talking about born again Christians Can those who are converted to God keep the commandments perfectly? Remember now, it's asking those who are converted, those who are true, pious Christians, if they can keep the commandments. Those who have born-again hearts, those whose heart has been regenerated, recreated by the power of the Spirit, can they keep God's commandments perfectly? And then the answer follows, no. Even the holiest you might say the holiest of men, the holiest of people, have even as yet only a small beginning of the obedience that is required. People have got 
That now is the shocking reality of Romans chapter 7. The good that I want, Paul cries out in despair. The good that I want to do, that I do not do. And the evil that I do not want to do, that I do. Oh, the beginnings are there, but those beginnings are so small, and the perfection that God requires me of me, it just isn't there. I am unable. Oh, the Spirit is active. The Spirit is within us, and the Spirit is working. But the powers of the flesh, or if you will, the weakness of the fallen flesh because of the power of Satan is still so strong. And the good that I want to do, I do not do. Christ pours into us his powers from above. But the power of hell below is still also with us in this life. Listen to the Ten Commandments again in that context and from that perspective. What does God require in the Tenth Commandment? That not even a thought or an inclination would ever arise in my heart against any one of God's commandments. Am I able to do that? Are you? Am I able to keep God's law perfectly? Are you? No. Not even the holiest of men can have only a small beginning of that perfect obedience that is required. Well then, What's the sense? <clears throat> what good is all of this then? What possible purpose can there be to lay all of this before me, telling me that perfection is required, and then to tell me that I'm unable to do it? What's the sense of that whole? The catechism has anticipated our frustration. It has anticipated the same question. Well, then, if I can't keep God's law anyway, what possible advantage does it have to have them set before me each week again? What's the sense of reading and preaching the Ten Commandments if we can't keep them anyway? In essence, that's the next question of this Lord's Day. And then the answer is the exact opposite of what we had expected. We had thought that since we are unable to keep the commandments, to read them each week would drive us further away. That makes sense. I can't keep them, so don't confront me with them. But we read the exact opposite is true. Instead of driving us away, the commandments draw us closer to God and to his Christ. Follow with me, for we read that the commandments are intended to convict us of our sin and to drive us more and more to Christ to seek remission of sin. So God's will for us is that we stay close to Christ and in and of ourselves we are prone to wander far from him and now follow with me as I walk this journey and as I know the struggle between the spirit and the flesh and as I then time and time again have been defeated by the strength of the sinful flesh then Christ comes to me with his holy law and that I am made to feel, I am made to painfully feel the guilt of my sin in having transgressed the law of God. And then, and then, I become consciously aware that there is but one place where I can go with all of my guilt, to Calvary, to Golgotha, to the cross, to Jesus. Oh, may God be praised. He does what I am unable. All I can do is flee to Christ. For there is, there is my hope. There is my deliverance from the law of God. 
Apart from him, I die under the law of God. People of God, go back with me for a moment to Lord's Day 4. Do you remember what we learned there? There in a very similar question, in a very similar context was asked, there too we learned that God commanded that we love God with our whole hearts and our neighbor as ourselves. And then the question was asked there if we could do that. And we learned that no, we could not. And there too the question was raised, is that fair? Is it fair on God's part to ask of me something that I cannot give or do? But here, although a similar question is asked, we're not left with the answer of Lord's Day 4. No, no. There we simply heard that the justice of God required perfect obedience. And if we were unable, it was our own fault. And so it was not unfair on God's part to hold us responsible. But here in this question and in this answer, we hear of deliverance. Here we learn that God gives what he requires. Here we learn that through his commandments, God spurs me on to Christ. And God spurs me on to holy, thankful living. He tells me and he shows me that my feeble attempts at sanctification, my feeble attempts at holiness, my feeble attempts at perfect obedience is yet oh so far short from what he requires. But he also assures me that one day after this life, I will serve him perfectly. Each day again, Christ sets the law of God before us. And each day again, Christ asks of us, My son, my daughter, my children, give me your heart. Congregation, it would be the burden of my own pastor's heart that we live in an age of superficial Christianity. We live in a time where there is so much danger that Christianity is only a veneer on the outside a certain religiosity, having a form of godliness, but yet having hearts that do not belong to Christ. It was already so in the days that Jesus walked on this earth. Jesus was never as vehement as when he denounced the hypocrites. The hypocrites and the self-righteous and the sanctimonious among the crowd, they always got the worst tongue lashing from our Lord. And to the hypocrites of his day, he said, Woe to you! For you clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but the inside is rotten. You are beautiful on the outside, but your bones within you are dead. You are as whitewashed, tottering fences, white and beautiful on the outside, but inwardly rotten. You brood of vipers, how do you expect to escape the fires of hell? Jesus, being the very Son of God, saw the hearts. He was oh so kind and gentle with the penitent sinners, even the most vile sinners. But he had no use, no time, no patience for hypocrites. Congregation, well, forgive me, but while preparing for this sermon, one of the commentators quoted from the words found written on the walls, apparently, of a cathedral in Europe. And I want to read to you what was written there. Because the man captured the mind of Christ and his condemnation of hypocrites, he wrote, and I quote, You call me master, and you obey me not. You call me light, and you see me not. You call me the way, and you walk me not. 
You call me life, and you want me not. You call me wise, and you follow me not. You call me fair, but you love me not. You call me rich, and yet you ask of me not. You call me eternal, and you seek me not. You call me gracious, and you trust me not. You call me noble, and you serve me not. You call me mighty, and you honor me not. You call me just, and you fear me not. You call me Lord, and you praise me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. That now, in essence, is the concern and the content of this commandment. This commandment judges the spiritual condition of our hearts in the light of our material interests. God here reaches down into the context of our everyday earthly existence and confronts us here with the final test of his law. He asks, what is it that you want most of all? And the way that we answer that question demonstrates the condition and reveals the condition of our hearts. Our hearts must belong to God and Christ. That's the, that's the entire question here. Always, says the Catechism, there is not one moment in our lives that we may ease off in our determination to live holy, sanctified lives. Young people, you are not given time. You have been set aside already at the baptismal font. Already then, the Lord said to you, I am your God, and you are my child. Honor your covenant obligations. Already then, it was required of you to give your heart to Christ and to live every waking moment of your life in thankful obedience for what God has done for you and demonstrated at the font. The transformation from death to life must be total. It must be radical. It must be complete, obvious, constant, and consistent. There must be a holy unity between the heart and hand and mouth and mind. And to that end, the law is given us and set before us and to that end, the commandments of God are published by the churches each Lord's Day again. We hear God's law, and we're driven to acknowledge and confess that we cannot do it. We cannot give what the Lord requires. We realize that each day again, and we, that we fail so miserably, and it drives us. It drives us to despair. No, no. It drives us to our knees at the cross of Golgotha. And then praise be to God who by his word and spirit not only convicts us of our sin, but who goes on to show us the Christ of God, who has kept God's law perfectly in our stead, since we could not do it. He convinces us that we have new hearts by the grace of God. You see, through the law, God points us first to Sinai, but then he shows us Golgotha. On Mount Sinai, God confronts us with his law and says to us, this is what is wrong with you. But on Golgotha, God comes to you and says, this is what I have done for you. Now go back with me to the introduction. We started off by saying that it was conceivable that someone would and could say, I have kept all God's law perfectly. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I don't live immorally. 
I don't worship idols. All of these things I have kept. It is conceivable that someone could keep all of these laws and still be eternally lost. That now is what the commandment has warned us of this afternoon. This commandment wants to instill in our hearts and in our minds that God takes no pleasure in those who keep his commandments grudgingly and that God is not pleased with those who refrain from sin because of possible consequences. So God commands his people to gather together on Sunday. He takes no pleasure in those who come to fill a pew but come grudgingly. God is not pleased with those who refrain from sin because of possible consequences. No, God insists that we keep his law because it is our chief delight to do so. God insists that we come to his house to worship because it is a delight to do so. This means that there must be a change, a change in us that is more than skin deep. It must be a radical change of heart. It means that God in Christ has come to us, has ripped out our hearts of stone, that God has taken them out of our bosom and he has replaced those stone hearts of stone with hearts of living flesh beating with desire to serve a risen Lord. By faith as a gift of God, but by faith in the crucified Son of God, people who have wandered far from God, think of Peter, people who have wandered far from God become a people who love God and who love their neighbor with all of their hearts and they learn to say with the Apostle Paul, God forbid that I should boast in anything save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For nothing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. It was there on Golgotha. It was there on that cross. It was through him who gave up his life on that accursed tree. It was there that the world is crucified to me, says Paul. And therefore, out of thankfulness for what God has done for me in Christ, I, you, me, we, we worship him, we love him every waking moment of our lives by keeping his commandments. They are, they must be, our chief delight.